Morning, everyone. Question for you on the 13th. Are you more excited about coffee coming back or kids' ministry coming back? Oh, wow. Oh, we could have a fight. This would be great. Wonderful. Well, we're excited for both of them to come back on the 13th. Uh, we're looking at John chapter 3, verse 16 over the course of this four-week series. And to give you some sense of where that verse comes from, in John chapter 3, a man approaches a house where Jesus is staying, and he does so at night under the cover of darkness. Uh, perhaps he has the hood of his robe pulled down around his face because he does not want to see, does not want anyone to see who it is that is going to visit Jesus on this particular night. John 3 tells us that his name is Nicodemus. And he doesn't want people to see that he is going to visit Jesus because Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 71 most powerful and influential people in Israel. He's rich, he's powerful, but perhaps most importantly in this equation, he is one of the teachers of Israel. And how would it look if he, one of the teachers of Israel, was found going to speak with Jesus, a man from this backwoods area of Galilee with no formal theological education. He didn't come out of any of the known rabbinic schools. What would it look like if he was going to speak with this Jesus? And so he goes at night under the cover of darkness. And he sits with Jesus, and as he's with him in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Rabbi, We know that you're a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. What has Nicodemus seen Jesus do? Well, chances are he has seen Jesus give sight to the blind. That he has seen Jesus call the lame to rise up and walk. That he has seen Jesus cast out demons. And as he looks at this, he says, you know what? This sure seems like the work of God. Is this the kingdom? What's going on here? And so Jesus answers him about what's going on and tells him about who it is that can be a part of the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. In verse 3 of chapter 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus, uh, he's like a kindergartner in the sense that he is a literalist. Not just a literalist, he is a hyper-literalist. And so when he hears Jesus say, you must be born again, immediately he reacts and says, whoa, how is that possible? How is a guy supposed to climb back into his mother's womb? And does the mom get a vote in any of this? Because that sounds awful. So Jesus says to him, I'm not talking about a second physical birth. Instead, I need you to understand you're born once physically, but then you're born a second time spiritually into relationship with God. That is being born again. And so he talks to him about being born again and this new life that comes from being born again. And in the midst of that conversation, we see our verse for this series in which Jesus wants him to understand how a person comes into this new life in Christ. 
A few verses after Nicodemus initiates this conversation, we come to John chapter 3, verse 16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so over the course of these four weeks, we're looking at the four different parts of this verse so that we can understand it, but also so that we can use this verse in order to share the message of Jesus with others. We look at the peril two weeks ago. What is the peril? Perishing. That because of our sin, we deserve eternal punishment. Last week, we looked at the plan. God didn't want that. And so out of his deep love, he sent his son so that we could be saved from that. Next week, we're going to look at the prize. What is the prize of salvation? It's eternal life. But this week, we're looking at the path of salvation, which is a path of belief, a path of faith. And that's our focus today. Would you guys pray with me for just a moment before we dig deeper into this? Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and rule and reign in our hearts and minds. Speak to us now about what your word says about belief. Lord, we're so thankful for the call into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. When my daughter had just turned two years old and our son was about six months old, my wife and I got caught up one evening both taking care of our six-month-old son. And I looked around and I realized, well, I didn't know where my daughter went. We hadn't heard the door open or close to outside, so we were pretty sure she was still within the house someplace. But we weren't sure where she was. And so I went up to her bedroom to check, and she wasn't there. Erica went to the kitchen to check. She wasn't there. I went to the bathroom, and I peeked in to look and see if she was on the toilet, and da, no, shoot, she wasn't there. Erica went to check our bedroom. We checked every room of the house and she wasn't in any of them. And at that point, we began to realize that we were the worst parents of all time. That we had lost our daughter within our house. And as we stood there feeling terrible about losing our daughter within our house, that's when I heard her voice talking to herself. And so I followed the voice, and I found her in the bathroom that I had already checked. Go ahead, insert a joke about how husbands look for things here. But she was in the bathtub. I didn't see her because the shower curtain was mostly pulled. She was in there with her clothes off, just waiting for the bath water to come. She wanted to take a bath, and she figured if she just got undressed and sat in the bathtub, that the water would appear. But in fact, that's not really how running water works in our homes, is it? Running water is one of the greatest blessings of the modern era. Can we agree on that? If we were a person that came here from 300 years ago and watched the way that we can wash a dish or take a shower or water our lawn or just go and get a nice, cold, pure glass of water to drink anytime we want, we would be like, you guys are the luckiest people on the planet. What a blessing. But that water just sits there in the pipes until someone turns it on. That was the lesson my daughter learned that day. Right? Someone has to activate that water. Someone has to turn that on in order for that blessing to be poured out. Now clearly, our salvation is a far greater blessing than running water, as great as running water is. 
It's the greatest blessing that we can experience in life, that God saves us from sin to relationship with him, that he saves us from perishing to eternal life. And yet, like that running water, that great blessing sits there unless it is activated or turned on. And what is it that activates that blessing of salvation? If we want to be saved, grow in that salvation, live our life in that salvation, that all happens by belief. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's how God's salvation is activated in our life. It's activated through belief or through faith. Martin Luther, a pastor from the 16th century, put it this way. God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. And since everything depends on faith or belief, it seems like it's worth a few minutes of our time this morning to ask some rather fundamental questions about what is this belief that John 3.16 is talking about? What is this faith that everything hinges on? So let's start with this question. In whom must we believe? Right? In whom must we believe? Can we, can we all agree that that phrasing is awkward? Who do we believe in? In whom must we believe? Uh, whatever. Right? Who are we supposed to believe in? Right? John 3.16 says that we're to believe in him. Who's the him there? Yeah, you can say it. You'll get it right. Sunday school answer, that's right, it's Jesus. But John 3.16 goes beyond that in its description of who we are to believe in because almost everyone believes in Jesus in some way, don't they? Some people believe that Jesus was simply a good teacher in history to be lined up against all of the other good teachers in history and we should just take some pieces from all of them. Others believe that Jesus was a miracle worker. Still others believe that he was a political revolutionary that can teach us about society. But John 3.16 says that in order to be saved and go from perishing to eternal life, we can't just believe in whatever Jesus we feel like. We have to believe in the Jesus who is the one and only Son of God. That's the designation in John 3.16. Him is the one and only Son of God. And so let's go back to a question that we actually addressed here in April. Because I know you remember everything I preached on in April. Most of you word for word, I I, I guarantee. In in April, what we talked about was what Jesus is communicating when he takes that name for himself over and over again in the Gospels, Son of God. What are we supposed to understand about Jesus from that phrase that he uses of himself over and over again, Son of God? The most important thing that a son gets from their father is their nature. A son gets a lot of things from their father. I have a son, and he has blue eyes, probably because I have blue eyes, and he's got a high forehead, probably because I have a high forehead, and he he gets to drive a 2005 Corolla because his dad lets him. There's a lot of things my son gets from his dad. But the most important thing that he gets from his dad is what? That he's a human being. And as we've said many times in here, if his parents were dogs, he'd be a dog. And if his parents were a bird, he'd be a bird and on and on. But the most important thing that he gets from his parents is his humanity. 
And when Jesus uses this, this phrase over and over again about himself, this title, Son of God, what he wants us to understand is that he has the same nature as the Father. That they have one nature. What nature is that? It's the divine nature, isn't it? That just as the Father is infinite, almighty, holy God, so the Son is infinite, almighty, eternal, holy God. That's what he wants us to understand. That's made even more obvious by the Greek word that he uses before the word Son in John 3.16. Some of your translations say, one and only Son. Others say only Son. Others may say only begotten Son. There are all of these different translations because the Greek phrase here is challenging to translate. But if we take a moment, I think we can understand it. Right? The first half of this word is the Greek word mono. What does that mean? One or single. The second part of the word is the Greek word genis, from which the Latin genus comes. It means kind or nature. We, we take our word gene from this because that's the building block of our nature. And so what this word means is to be one in kind or to have a single nature. So, so this phrase that is used in John 3.16 is that, we, that Jesus is the one in nature son of God. He is the single in kind son of God. One in nature with whom? With the father that was just referenced. Just as the Father is divine, eternal, infinite God, so the Son is divine, eternal, infinite God. And so when we are to believe in Jesus, it isn't just whatever Jesus we feel like or whatever Jesus is convenient or whatever Jesus is popular. John 3.16 says it is in Jesus who is the one in nature Son of God, God in the flesh. That is who we are to believe in. And that leads to a natural question for all of us to answer, doesn't it? Have we believed in that Jesus? Well, in order to answer that question, maybe we need to understand what belief means. What is belief according to the scripture? The Greek word that is used in John 3.16 for belief is the word pisteo. It's a word that means to trust fully in something in your thinking. And when we trust fully in something in our thinking, it impacts how we act or how we behave. I told you before that it was February. Five degrees outside with three feet of snow all over my yard. When I went to the store, when we moved into our house, and I bought a lawnmower. Right? Why did I buy a lawnmower with three feet of snow on my yard and, and when it's five degrees out? Because I believed that the weather was going to get nicer. And when we believe something, genuinely believe something, it impacts how we act each and every day. I believed the weather would get nicer, my grass would grow, and so because I had that belief, it impacted how I lived my daily life. E even when it was five degrees with three feet of snow. Oh, it's coming, friends, it's coming. Aren't you excited? Yeah, sure you are. Okay, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that's supposed to say 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is faith? It's assurance. It's conviction. 
Can you hear the strength of those words? The word for faith here is the noun pistis. You may recognize that that has the same root to it as the word pisteo that was used for belief in John 3.16. And this word for faith, this word for belief that comes out of the same root means to have a full assurance or conviction in your mind. It affects how you live your life if you have that kind of belief. Have you guys ever been forced to play the trust fall game? I say forced to play because no one would do that on their own. But in certain settings, maybe in some sort of work exercise or in some sort of terrible youth ministry training, someone asked you to play the trust fall game, right? Where you say, yes, I I trust you. I I believe you'll catch me. And then you fall back. I was going to bring somebody up, and then I realized if I'm supposed to say six feet away, that doesn't work very well. Boom. Clearly identifies what's going to happen in the trust fall game. So I want, to ima- I want you to imagine that you're up here playing the trust fall game, and I ask each and every one of you, do you trust that I will catch you? And every one of you says, yes, I believe you will catch me. And then half of you are willing to fall back, and the other half aren't. Right? Which half had a genuine belief? That question's too obvious to even answer, right? We recognize when we have a genuine belief in something, it impacts every area of our life, and that is the belief, the trust, that the Bible is talking about, that we place in Jesus, the one and only Son of God. We trust that he is God and he is man, and as such could pay the penalty for my sins and for your sins. We trust that he is God and that he is man and that he got up out of the grave and defeated sin and death so that we can have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Yeah, we believe that. It is a conviction that impacts every part of our life. We we must believe. Believe in the one and only Son of God. And if we do, we will make a declaration about that faith. Faith is something that is inside us. Belief is something that's in us. But the Bible says that for the person who has a genuine faith in God, it always works its way to the outside. And it starts by working its way to the outside through a declaration that we have that faith and belief in Jesus. Right? What, what is that declaration in the scripture? That declaration is baptism. When a person places their faith or trust in Jesus today, sometimes they might be asked to make an external declaration in a different way. They might be asked to raise their hand if they've placed their faith in Jesus, or they might be asked to walk an aisle if they've placed their faith in Jesus. But in the New Testament, when someone trusted in Jesus, the external, the outward declaration of that inward belief was to be baptized. So that in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are cut to the heart, that passage says. They have faith in Jesus, and they ask Peter, what must we do? And Peter says, be baptized. In Acts chapter 8, there is an Ethiopian riding in a chariot, and a man named Philip explains to him the gospel of Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53. And when he trusts in Jesus, he sees some water and says, i got to get baptized. In Acts 10 and 11, the first Gentiles trust in Jesus as their Savior. 
And when they place their faith in Jesus, Peter immediately says, come on, guys, we got to get baptized. In Acts chapter 16, a Philippian jailer and his family trust in Jesus. And when they place their faith in Jesus, immediately Paul says to them, let's go, guys, time to get baptized. Because in the New Testament, the external declaration of our inward belief and faith is the declaration of baptism in which we say, Jesus, we want to be identified with you, identified with you in your death. We will be buried beneath that water and dead to sin, and then we will be raised to new life. And as we are identified with you, it is our declaration of that inward faith and belief that we have. What is the declaration of belief? It is baptism. And so it's worth us again asking, is is it time for us to make that external declaration of the faith and belief that we have in Jesus Christ? That's the initial declaration of belief. But if we have a genuine faith in Jesus, there is day-to-day evidence of that belief in us. In places like Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, there's going to be a lot of people who come and claim his name. Jesus, Jesus. And he's going to say, depart from me, I I never knew you. And and in passages like the parable of the four soils, Jesus points out that there are people who made some sort of initial declaration of following Jesus, but ultimately they weren't his followers. And so how do I know if my faith is genuine? How do I know if my faith is real? The New Testament gives us those evidences. And the first one is this. I have a real and genuine faith if it lasts. My faith is real and genuine and saving if it lasts in my life. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it doesn't say that people will be saved if they believed, past tense, but if they believe, present, ongoing. Right? A, A person who is saved is one who believes. And a sign of genuine belief is that that belief, that faith is lasting. It perseveres in our life. You may remember a few months ago, we were looking at the book of Colossians. And in there, we looked at this tremendously encouraging passage about Jesus saving us. Verses 21 and 22 said, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Who is it that God saves like that? It's those who believe, those who have faith. And how do you know that faith is genuine? Verse 23, If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Who is it that is saved and reconciled to God? It's those who have faith. And a genuine faith is one that perseveres, one that is ongoing in a person's life. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples about all the obstacles and all the temptations they're going to have to being faithful to him and living in faith. And he says to them there, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Doesn't that sound like great news? 
Jesus says to his disciples, good news. I'm going to divide families. There's going to be people who hate you because of me. Yay. But then he says, and this is so important, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. How can we know a genuine saving faith? Because it lasts, it endures. Uh, It's stable, Colossians says. In the book of Revelation, as God is speaking to the seven churches at the beginning of that book, he tells them who it is that will pass on into his new kingdom, who it is that will be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. And as he is doing that, again and again, he says, it's those who overcome, it's those who conquer, those whose faith lasts. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So so how do we know that our faith is genuine, that it's true? We can know because it lasts, because it perseveres. But that's not the only way, the only evidence of a genuine saving faith, according to the Scripture. The other evidence that it gives us is this. We know we have a genuine saving faith if it's life-changing. If our faith transforms the way that we live day in and day out. If a person trusts that Jesus is the only way to be saved from their sins, that he has invited us into a kingdom where he's the king and we are to do whatever he calls us to do, that one day we will stand before our king and give full account for our lives. If a person genuinely believes all of that, then it transforms our entire approach to life. Beyond that, Jesus says, if you believe in that, I'm going to send the Spirit, the Helper, and they are going to come into your life and begin to produce fruit of a changed life. Fruit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And soon, those are going to be the ways that you relate and interact with everybody around you. In gentleness, in kindness, in love, in patience, that will dominate your relationships if you know me and love me because my spirit will be living in you. Your life will be changed. In Acts chapter 2, I referenced those 3,000 that came to faith in Jesus who were cut to the heart. And when Peter addressed them, he didn't just tell them that they should be baptized. What else did he say to them? He said, repent and be baptized. What is repentance? Repentance is a, a turning, a changing of mind, heart, and life that accompanies a genuine faith each and every time. Because when we believe in Jesus and enter into the kingdom where he is king, it changes the way we live. No longer do we live going this way for ourself and the things that we want. Instead, we go this way. And our motive for all of the decisions that we make becomes, am I loving God with this? Am I loving others with this? Am I loving God with this? Am I loving others with this? So much so that James chapter 2 says that if we don't have the good works as God defines them, then we don't have a genuine saving faith. Uh, James 2 says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
A genuine faith will show itself in the works of God. And what kind of works are those? Those are works of love. Right? Loving God and loving others. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. Circumcision here stands for uh, the keeping of the law. Right? That, doesn't, that doesn't count for anything. But what does? Only faith working through love. A genuine faith always works its way out through love for God and love for people. And, and that's how we can know a genuine faith has entered into our life, that we have a genuine saving faith because our day-to-day living is transformed and what motivates us is a love for God and a love for people as we go through our daily activities. Instant perfection? No, that's not what we're talking about. It's not what any of us will experience. But instead, growth. Like fruit grows on a tree, we will see growth in those fruit that God's Spirit produces in us and in our love for God and love for others. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, this is apparently a data, quote a guy from the 16th century. Nothing really brings it home in the modern era. Like quoting a guy from the 16th century. He said this, Oh, it is a busy, active, living, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Over the course of this last week, these last several days, we have seen on the news person after person treat other people with a lack of love. People who are not motivated by loving God and loving others. And so they have acted in selfishness and hate towards others because they are of a different economic standing or because their skin happens to be a different color or because they disagree about some position on something. And instead of expressing love towards those that are different than us, love towards those with whom we disagree, people have instead expressed selfishness and hatred. We as the people of God stand out as different than that. Because when we have a genuine saving faith, our expression in each and every situation, our motivation in every day that we live is, how can I love God and love people? And as Jesus teaches, particularly, how can I love my enemy? Because that is the love of God when I love my enemy well. What is it that ultimately is an expression of a genuine saving faith? It's that God transforms our lives and we live in love for God and and love for people. Who can have this salvation of Jesus according to John 3.16? Is it just the Jews? That, That might be what Nicodemus thought as he approached Jesus on this night. Is it just the super rich? Just the super smart? No, John 3.16 declares this gift of salvation is for whoever believes. Are are you a whoever? Whoever believes this gift of salvation is open to whoever believes. Is that you? Have you entered into that relationship with Jesus that comes 
through belief and faith in him. And if you have, have you made that public declaration of that faith by being baptized? If you want to talk to somebody about taking those steps, uh, there are places on our website where you can do that. There's cards on the chairs if you're here where you can do that. We'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to declare that faith that God has worked in you to others. And I want to invite you to pray with me now and give God thanks for the faith that he has brought into our lives, that great gift that he has given to us that saves us from perishing. Father, we're so thankful that you have sent your son and ultimately given us this great gift of faith so that as we believe in you, we move from perishing to eternal life. We move from sin into the family of God. I can't imagine anything better than that, and we say thank you for that. I pray for any out there who right now are saying, I place my faith in you, Jesus. Lord, ultimately, I pray for the courage to make that declaration, to declare their, their allegiance and loyalty to you, King Jesus. And Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to live in your family and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.